0: If you're adopting transracially and you're white, your child is going to face certain things growing up as a non-white person in this country that you just haven't faced. Like, that's just a fact. Um, you won't have that same experience to draw from. So, like, what do you have to draw from when these things happen? Or, like, if they face racism at school or you're trying to prepare them to, like, go out into the world, which is still, like, incredibly racist. Um, like, how how are you going to have those conversations? How are you going to prepare them? How are you going to stand with them? And when they're younger, advocate for them. And when they're older, support them however they need support.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast featuring conversations about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'll be speaking with writer Nicole Chung. Nicole Chung is the former managing editor of The Toast and editor-in-chief of Catapult magazine. She's also the author of the memoir All You Can Ever Know, which is out right now in paperback. All You Can Ever Know tells the story of Chung's life as an adoptee growing up in a white family and her efforts to find her birth parents. And I have to say this book is a staggering work that shook me to my core. It gives voice to so many things that Asian Americans have experienced and felt, including the casual racism that can feel pervasive in American society, and how much it can sometimes feel like the world wants you to ignore your heritage, even as such a task becomes increasingly impossible as time goes on. But beyond that, it really just is very gripping. It's a page turner. It's impossible to put down. All You Can Ever Know has been named a best book of the year by The Washington Post, NPR, Time, The Boston Globe, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, and many more. It's one of my favorite works of art of 2019, and I would recommend it and am recommending it to everyone I know. Before we get to our conversation, I do want to just say you can find more episodes of Culturally Relevant at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and wherever your podcasts are downloaded. You can also email us at culturallyrelevantshow.com at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter, at CREVshow, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. If you are a fan of the show, we would so appreciate it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a star rating or a review for us. It does make a huge difference to a small show like this one, and thanks to everyone who's already done that. Of course, if you enjoy this conversation, it would be awesome if you could share about it on social media as well. Every little bit helps. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Nicole Chung, and stay tuned afterwards for my weekly recommendations. Nicole Chung, thanks so much for speaking with me today.
0: Thank you for having me, David.
1: So one thing I often like to do is start with breaking in stories. And I'm curious if you can tell us about how you got started as a writer.
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, like a lot of writers, I've been writing since I was a kid. Uh, I don't know that I grew up thinking it was like a serious career option for me. Everyone always told me things like "you better have a plan B," <laughs> um, but it was it was like really my first love and serious hobby. Um, just last night, I was boring my daughter by telling her, you know, she's in middle school now, and I she asked me like what time I had to get up to start school, and I was remembering how in middle school and high school I would get up really early, like. Way before I had to, even though I hate mornings, um, and get ready, I'd get ready as quickly as possible so I could have time to write before school. Um, I don't do that now. (laughs) I I sleep as late as possible now, but it's just, I think that kind of goes to show, um, it it was just something that I always loved and really took refuge in, um, and it was really a mix of things. I, I grew up mostly writing fiction and um, really bad poetry <laughs> and <laughs> came to nonfiction pretty late. I will say I always liked to journal, but I didn't think about this as like, you know, creative writing necessarily. I didn't think of my journals as like personal essays in the making. Um, but it was always a way that I thought through and processed what happened to me and tried to figure out the world. Um, I took some writing classes in college, though I didn't major in it, uh, again, like mostly fiction and poetry, and um, didn't really start taking any nonfiction courses until, um, it wasn't even a course. It late late in my 20s, uh, I was sort of at loose ends and trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. I was thinking about going back to school, maybe for writing. Uh, so I, I took a number of like non-credit uh, writing courses and joined like local writing groups, Um, And it was a chance to share my work. And I found, like, to my surprise, I really liked nonfiction. Um, And then when I went back to grad school, eventually, I decided to focus on nonfiction and uh, in the process learned a lot about, like, workshopping and editing other people's writing, which I found I really loved. So, um, you know, I, I was thinking about a writing career, but from from pretty early on, I was also interested in editing so I feel really fortunate that I've found a way to do both. Um, and, you know, I, as for where I developed as an editor, I started at Hyphen as a volunteer, actually, and then moved to the Toast and I'm now at Catapult. So it's hard for me to separate those two halves of my career, the editing and the writing. Uh, they feel equally important to me and they they kind of took off around the same time. So, And I think they really feed, like one really tends to feed the other. Um, so I feel very lucky.
1: One of the most challenging things, I think, about the media industry is how quickly it changes. Uh, people often ask for advice about how to break in, but often the path that was taken by successful people is no longer available to others today. Uh, mm-hmm. But all that said, like, do you have any advice for people, particularly people of color, who are interested in getting their stories heard or published today? Like, you, It sounds like you volunteered and then were able to parlay that into a, a full-time position. Um, just curious if you have any advice from a publishing perspective.
0: Yeah, it's so tough because, um, well, first of all, I don't—I definitely don't consider myself like an expert on the media. I sort of dip my toes in and then like jump back out. And catapult, I would say, sort of straddles that line. At least the magazine between media and like literary writing. And I think the toast was very similar. And like an indie, it was an indie media site, but um, had real appeal in terms of like, uh, like to literary nerds <laughs> as well. I think one of the most valuable things for writers trying to break in, uh, whether we're talking media or like the literary world or some weird combination, uh, really is trying to find, this is going to sound really earnest and corny, but I think a lot of it is about trying to find people to connect with, whether they're readers or fellow writers or editors, like people who really understand what it is that you want to do and are fully on board, because there's always going to be a lot of people who don't get it or like, you know, it's not their thing, whatever it is that you're trying to write about or whatever it is you're trying to do. And like, you don't need to waste time on people who won't necessarily get it. You want to find the people who totally get what you're doing and are as excited about it as you are. And that's where you're going to find like people to publish you and where you can find mentors and where you can find readers and writing partners and accountability like partners. Um, This doesn't like make a career appear out of nowhere, but I think it's sort of that um, that quieter, sometimes unseen background support that makes it possible for you to persist and keep going, even when the opportunities aren't like thick on the ground. Um and yeah, I I don't know. I I the most valuable thing to me as a writer has always been being edited very well <laughs> by <laughs> editors. Um, and so I'm like I'm almost like embarrassingly grateful whenever I'm edited well. It's been the thing that's helped me grow the most. I think probably maybe maybe second to my own editing, um, because I have the privilege of thinking about words all day um, and working with writers all day. Um, but Yeah, it is. It's an increasingly, you know, not going to lie, I can't really sugarcoat it. It's an increasingly tough industry, whether we're talking media or publishing, to break into. Um, And unfortunately, at the beginning, it often involves like very low paying or not paying uh, opportunities. And it's going to continue to be a barrier to entry for a lot of people.
1: If I'm to summarize what you just said, uh, I would say it sounds like. Being willing to work really hard for not very much money at the beginning, finding and building a community of writers who are like-minded, and being open to feedback from editors. Is that a fair summation of what you said? Yes.
0: It doesn't sound like enough in terms of advice when I hear you (laughs) repeat it. But yeah, that's essentially it. I think that's great
1: advice. I think that's great advice, yeah. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> um, so your memoir, All You Can Ever Know, is absolutely riveting. I read the entire thing in two sittings. Oh, my and, gosh. And uh, I'm curious, like, what was it that compelled you to tell your story in the form of a book?
0: That's a good question. Um You know, I had already been sort of trying to tell it piecemeal, like essay by essay, about once a year, you know, in between other writing and other pieces, I would write something about adoption, like some aspect of it, um, and publish it somewhere. Um, There were a couple pieces at the Toast. You know, there have been pieces elsewhere. There was one in the New York Times. And every time I published one, I would get a lot of interesting feedback, like a lot of really good questions from people. Um, And eventually I realized, like, there's just no way to tell this whole story, like piece by piece, essay by essay. Eventually it occurred to me, it's probably a book. Um, if I can do it, I wasn't sure I could do it, but, uh, it it just seemed like only in a much longer work would I have the ability to answer every question I was getting, you know, think about every issue I wanted to, and really, write about it with the nuance I felt the topic deserved. Um, you know, there are a lot of like quick, easy takes about transracial adoption, um, and about like, uh, you know, multicultural families. I hadn't seen very many books though, um, that really explored an experience like mine, especially that were, you know, books that were written by transracial adoptees. Um, and so more and more, I just kept hearing, you know, this isn't a perspective that we hear enough of. Um, I, I will, I want to, you know, I want to acknowledge that in the adoption community, you know, transracial adoptees have been talking and writing about this for years. Um, But I think the mainstream adoption discussion, we're still often missing these voices. And so after a while, it also started to feel like, um, I can write about this, like, I'm pretty sure I can write this book, it could be a valuable perspective for some people, maybe when they haven't encountered. Um, And I was at a place in my life, this is also really important, where I could write about it. And it wasn't it wasn't harmful to me it wasn't deeply triggering like i had been through enough and processed enough and i had enough support and enough self-awareness that i knew i could write it um and it wouldn't like traumatize me uh and that was that was an important thing to recognize too because there are probably times in my life when this would have been really difficult um if i tackled it but it felt like the right time um you know by the time it became a possibility
1: Can you talk a little bit more about what are the times in your life where it would have been difficult and why that was?
0: Sure. I mean, I definitely think um, in my early 20s it would have been difficult. My early 20s, I would say, is when I really began to sort of shake off like this – Adoption myth I'd been raised with and really deeply questioned it. It was a very hard thing to start doing until like I left home and until I was on my own in the world and um, thinking about eventually starting my own family, really. It was just it was very hard to question this foundational story that I'd been given. It's not even so much that the story was a lie. Nobody was deliberately lying to me. It was just uh, a very simple, like straightforward story and um, really lacking in detail And my early to mid-20s is when I started to think, well, like, why don't we know more? Why don't I know more? What if there's more I could find out? What if there's a deeper story here? Um, You know, what else could I learn about my birth family and their reasons for placing me and everything that happened to them? Um, So I think it would have been kind of hard to write while I was just beginning that process. I think it would have been harder to write um, during my search and in the years immediately following, um, just because, again, like... I had like some work to do, I had some things to figure out, um, and I think I didn't yet know what all of it meant to me, so it would have been harder to translate it for other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what your response points to is this idea that like the image of adoption or transracial adoption in culture, right, like mm-hmm. is, uh, a lot of people don't even have access to what that is, and if they do, mm-hmm. it's generally like a simplistic happy story. Right. Right. From so my like perspective.
0: television or something. Right. Like in like television, yeah. like,
1: you know, happy, people happily ever after, you know, holding hands into the sunset. Mm-hmm. And I think what's so great about your book is that it talks about what happens after the people walk into the sunset, you know, like that it's, the story goes on and it's often much more complicated than we're led to believe.
0: Yeah, there were two things I really wanted to explore with the book. One was the question like what happens when an adoptee grows up? Because so often in stories, you kind of just see adoptees as infants or little children. You don't really see us like um, growing up and coming into our own like power and agency and questions. And and the other thing I really wanted to explore was what happens after a search like or after after a reunion in adoption, Um, because if we get those stories in media, again, it's very often the happy ending, sort of like people meeting and hugging and it's and then it's kind of over. Um, But what happened after the search is really the complicated part, I think, for so many people who who pursue one. So that was that was one thing that I really wanted to explore.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was what was so mind blowing about the book is like uh, it's all these kind of questions that I had about the adoption process, uh, you know, what happens after the search? What happens after the reunion? Like all these things that I had always kind of wondered in the back of my mind, but never read anything about or heard anything about, like and was brought to life so vividly in the, in the story. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like how the book has a real propulsive quality to it. Like as people have this, I was reading reviews of the book, people have described it as a real page turner. Uh, And I'm curious, like, the the book starts with your own own perspective. It jumps around in time a little bit. Then, as Mm -hmm. the book goes on, it broadens to encompass other perspectives. Tell us about how you decided to structure the book and, like, why you chose that approach.
0: Oh, my gosh. Thank you for asking me. I love talking about structure. It really just is so satisfying as a nerd. So... Um, the book, in its current like published form is not how I first wrote it. Uh, I had a whole entire first draft, like essentially the same pieces and parts of the story, uh, maybe minus five or ten thousand words, but essentially, like the whole book was done. And as I was reading it through, um, it didn't feel like it had to me yet a propulsive quality, and I wanted it to feel like a page turner. Uh, I wanted people to, not not to like build up suspense necessarily or i knew it wasn't like a thriller um, but just i wanted people to to feel like they were really along on this journey um and that they had a reason to keep turning pages and so i had this dream actually um and forgive me if like you've heard this in some other interview but i did i had a dream during the re- like the revision process where i was telling my editor like julie i need to change the entire like book structure and so my in the dream Julie was really supportive and I woke up and I had like this very clear image of like exactly how I would restructure the book. And my first reaction was like, oh crap, now I have to actually do this. This is going to be a lot of work. But the second reaction was excitement because I felt like it would work. And that's why those other perspectives are in the book. Um, One of the things I really wanted to do was show – I knew I wanted my sister's story in there. It's such a big, a big part of my story. Um, And I know, you know, I talked with her about it and she was excited to have, to have me sort of tell both our stories. Um, But I think a lot of the propulsive quality in the book, at least in the first half comes from the fact that you sort of get to see us growing up. um, We're side by side on the page, but in real life, of course we're separated and we don't know about each other. Um, And my sister's story I mean, it's very interesting and important, of course, in and of itself. But in the context of my story, it's sort of like an alternate timeline for me. Like in her life, you see what my life could have been. Um, And I think when we met, that was something we actually talked about was, you know, I think it's somewhat normal to wonder at times what it would be like to grow up in a different family. Like we had both wondered, I guess for me, it was like, I imagined growing up in my birth family and for her, like imagining what it could have been like to grow up somewhere else. Like when we met each other, that was sort of an answer to those questions that we had. Um, sorry, I'm getting off the subject, but essentially I decided to restructure the book and have a lot more going back and, t- and forth in time. Um, jumping from like an important moment in my search, like a question that I had about my birth family as an adult, and then going back to childhood to a a moment that would explain to you where that question or wish or thought or like drama (laughs) came from. Um, And I really wanted the past and the present to sort of be in conversation with each other uh, at the same time that you have sort of my life and my sister's life in conversation with each other. And I think those two elements are where, um, it's where, you know, that's what keeps you turning pages in the first half, especially like, and there's also this sense that, you know, I'm going to search, you don't know what I'll find. Um, you know, that like my sister and I are sort of here together on the page, but you don't know when and where our paths, our lives w- will intersect. Um, and so that's another thing that I think that keeps people interested in the story is, you know, when are we going to actually, when when will those paths meet? Like, when will we find out about each other? And then what will happen when we do?
1: I think one of the great parts about the earliest uh, uh, chapters of the book is also you kind of tee up the question of uh, what it means to be a transracial adoptee by recounting a uh, conversation you had with prospective uh, adoptive parents, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a conversation that happened like later on in your life when you were in your 20s, if I recall correctly, right? I was Um, just
0: out of college, yeah.
1: Yeah, and uh, people wanted to ask you like, What was it like being a transracial adoptee? Was it okay? Because they're about to potentially adopt children themselves. And like your whole internal monologue kind of frames the fundamental uh, dilemma of the book, right? Of like uh, what does it truly mean to be uh, a transracial adoptee and and how has that shaped your life, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What was behind the decision to kind of put that conversation – was that always – in there towards the beginning, because um, it really does frame the the rest of the book, in my opinion.
0: Thank you. I had an idea to sort of have it toward the beginning, um, but I wasn't sure exactly where it would go in the book uh, until, probably until I was revising. Um, I knew that conversation would be part of it, and it, it's because it was such a like, you know, I wanna stress like for them, I, I think it was like a nice conversation, and I probably said reassuring things. I mean, I know I did. Um, like. I was very lucky. Your child will be too. Everything's going to work out just fine. Sort of all you need is love, that kind of thing. Um, At that point in my life, like, I don't think I would have been capable of giving any other answer, like any more nuanced, more complicated answer. At 22, I still felt like a great deal of pressure to sort of be like this good adoptee um, and to like represent my family well and to reassure people that like, you know, I'd been loved and I was okay, so they would be okay. It's not even a lie, exactly. Um, It was like the only truth I was capable of giving at that point in my life. But I remember during that conversation, like the wheels spinning in my head as I was thinking, like, I just remembered, like, you know, early encounters with racism, I went to like an all white school, I lived in a very white town, I didn't know any other Koreans until I went to college. And so like, I think that that shaped me in a way that like, maybe it wouldn't, you know, if I'd grown up in a, in a community with like more diversity or more Asian Americans or more Koreans, like, I'm sure I would have had like a different experience. It would still be complicated. Um, you know, but it would be different. But for me, like having no visibility, like no connections with anyone of my ethnic background growing up and dealing with racism, like at school constantly and, and not having anyone to talk to about it, you know, um, it had been like years since I thought about those experiences and like, like being called slurs on the playground. Um, And I remember just feeling like this deep shame at the time and not wanting to tell anybody about it. And at 22, like I still, I still didn't want to tell these people that that had been my experience. It wasn't just to protect them. It was like, I was protecting myself. Um, I thought for like, you know, hours, days, weeks after that conversation, like, had I chickened out? Like, should I have said something else? Was it even my place to warn them? Because I didn't want to, like, tell them something that would make them not adopt. You know, they seemed like they would be great parents, and I knew they wanted to adopt. It was just really complicated, and I I still don't know. You know, I think if I were having that conversation today, it would go very differently. But at the time, you know, it was—I had the discussion I was capable of, I guess.
1: So just now you were talking about growing up um, as— Uh, the only Asian American that you knew or one of the only Asian Americans that you knew. And I think I appreciate whenever someone comes onto this podcast and shares about their life. And so like one of the things, you know, I want to try to do is use the podcast to share about my life as well. And I think like full disclosure, uh, I was also called racial slurs on the playground as a child Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it is really painful, but I, I think that like, um, it's it's not necessarily something that my parents were like. I don't even think they they understood the concept, you know, mm. of like what that would be. Because and they were they're pro- probably too busy to understand the concept, you know. My parents were like working at a Chinese restaurant when when I mm. grew up. Um, and one of the things I was so struck by reading the book was that this racism was kind of invisible to the community, right? That like it's it's uh, on the outside, the community looked very loving and caring and like a nice community. And, um, you know, on the inside, the people were saying horrible things to you. And um, I'm curious, like, th- that is to some degree how I feel about how the last few years have played out in terms of uh, U.S. politics. I'm curious, mm-hmm. like, in the sense that there's people all around us, but that like some of like, we, what we've discovered, I think, is that some of them harbor views that, uh, are very detrimental to immigrants, let's say. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious like if you at all kind of connected that experience with like what we're going through today in any way?
0: I definitely did. you know when i um <laughs> it's it was really hard to write. I wrote a lot of the book in the months following the election, and it was just a challenging time, I think, to do anything in general other than be angry and call representatives and like be angry some more. Um, so I don't know, but that was definitely kind of in my mind. It wasn't in my mind when I pitched the book. You know, I sold the book before the election. I knew one thing I wanted to explore in the book were... I guess, the limits of of love and solidarity because there was no question, right, that, like, I grew up very loved in my family. At the same time, my family, my adoptive family, is white. They are far more conservative than I am. Lots of people in my adoptive family voted for Trump. Um, my parents and I probably haven't voted the same way, like, our entire adult lives. <laughs> um, and it's not something, like, that we... I wouldn't say we sweep it under the rug, like, we'll talk and we'll argue, but, like... Um, there's still, like, a lot of, like, love present in the midst of this, like, fundamental sort of disagreement about, like, um, what the country needs in the direction that it's going, and it was something I did want to write about, like, because it's not that, like, love isn't important, but one thing I think that, that current politics has shown is, like, what happens when you run up against like the limits of that love, and what it means when someone loves you but doesn't know how to offer you real solidarity, um, doesn't know how to see what you experience? You know, you referred to the racism that a lot of people experienced that I experienced and that you did as sort of invisible because on the outside everyone seems very nice. Um, like not to go off on another tangent, but. I was talking with a, someone I knew who went to the same elementary school I did. And like, you know, they said to me, like, I don't remember the school like that at all. (laughs) And I, I had to say like, well, you know, you didn't because you're white and I'm sure you would (laughs) have had a really different experience there than I had. And it doesn't mean they were all like terrible people. And it's not like 100% of the kids were calling me slurs. Um, but you know, it's just like that we went to the same school. We had what like, on the outside, people might have assumed to, to have been the same experience, but, like, really, we had very different experiences. Why? Because of race, right? Um, I think one of the challenges of the Trump era is trying to get, like, well-meaning people who want to be your allies to see what they have not been brought up to see or conditioned to see because they have the privilege of not experiencing that particular form of oppression, even if they experience a different form um, if you haven't directly experienced racism yourself, it, it can just be a hard thing to um, to really understand when someone else is trying to explain it to you. So I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, no,
1: you, you totally have. And I think that I mean, my heart just went out to you when I was reading that section because not only uh, had I gone through similar things, but also I knew that you were very isolated. You know, I I was surrounded by Asian people when I was growing up. Um, So at least I had like people to relate to about it. But one of the things I think that's great about the book is that like uh, the book is doing the work that you just described. You know, it is helping people to understand more uh, what life is like from a different perspective. And I think that's so valuable. Um, One of the things I found compelling about the story is the idea that you wished you were white when you were kid, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I'm going to go on a limb and say something potentially controversial, which is like I think most Asian Americans I know have at one point or another wished we were white. Mm. Um, I'll admit it's certainly something I felt uh, okay. as well in the past. Okay. And um, I, I think it's just, like, this bizarre thing that, like, many Asian Americans internalize because American culture kind of lulls you into the sense that that's possible, right? Like, when you watch TV or, or movies, right, and, like, until recently, most of the protagonists have been white, and uh, these uh, depictions invite you to relate to these people. right. And uh, so I'm wondering, yeah, can you, can you talk a little bit more about like that desire that you felt as a kid yeah. and also how you look back on that desire in retrospect?
0: It's so insidious. I mean, for yeah. all the reasons that you stated, like even if I'd grown up in a like let's say I'd grown up in a community more like yours where there were other people who at least, you know, who looked like me. Um, I think it can still be so difficult given like the media landscape um, and, you know, the literary landscape. Certainly it's getting a lot better um you know although i have been mistaken for several different asian american authors <laughs> um like i i do i think i think it's getting better but at the same time when i was growing up be like yeah not only were there no real mirrors in like the shows i watched or the books i read um but there were also no mirrors in my daily life so i remember just you know and that i mean from my even in my home and my family like everybody was white everybody in my neighborhood you know uh so I thought that was like what I was supposed to be. And it sounds like so strange and like pathological now. Like, of course I was like Korean and like, I should have been able to like see and recognize and accept that and also be proud of it. But again, I had like no models around me for what that even meant. Like not knowing any other Koreans, I didn't know what it meant to be Korean. Um, And I would sometimes just feel really shocked looking in the mirror. Like I half expected to see a white face because I mean, everybody around me was white. Um, it wasn't even that I thought of white as necessarily better, although I did for certain periods. It was just like, it was just so much the default. Like it was good and it was bad and it was everything in between. It was like all I ever saw. Um, I, you know, I wish I could tell you when that like desire evaporated. It uh, Having like a couple of Asian friends in high school, like for the first time, that was that was probably part of it. And of course, like going to college, I mean, you know, and being around a lot of other Asians for the first time, it both made me feel very like Korean and very like not Korean, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, it's kind of the same when I'm with my birth family, I never feel less Korean than when I'm with my birth family, because like, it, it just really drives home like how much I can't and don't understand like the distance, I guess, um, the cultural gap, but at the same time, like, I'm so grateful to have like these relationships now. And, um, I don't know, like, as for how I feel about that, like desire to be white, I understand it. Like, and I try to be like patient with my, my child self. (laughs) Uh, And at the same time, it is something that's kind of embarrassing to me, you know, like I, um, I really, I don't know. I wish that I hadn't grown up feeling that way. Um, Oh, I should say that, like, I had a few, I guess, Asian-American role models, like I've written before about how much it meant to see, like, Christy Yamaguchi <laughs> in the Olympics when I was growing up. It was, like, the first time I'd seen anybody who even vaguely sort of resembled me being, like, um, I guess, celebrated in this in this huge way. And there were there were a few other, like, I guess, touchstones throughout my childhood. But for the most part, like, it was just not what I saw. You know, what I saw was whiteness and... Yeah, again, it was even less about thinking white whiteness was, was superior and just more about thinking that's all there was.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I, I have a different bit of a different perspective on it. Right. Well, first of all, sure. I agree uh, with what you're saying about the depictions of Asian Americans and culture. I just, a few weeks ago on this podcast, uh, had director Joseph Kahn on the show, and he was saying how <laughs> the first time he saw an Asian male on television – that spoke, you know, like with no accent. Mm-hmm. It was himself. <laughs> it was oh, when God. he was giving an interview uh, for like a TV show or something like that. Wow. Um, so I think there is like this sense that it's hard to see versions of yourself in pop culture, uh, particularly if you grew up at the same time you and I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think you're right that people who have never felt that desire to be white might look at it as. Pathological and embarrassing and weird, but I guess for me, I feel like uh, s- something that we've been talking a lot about in society these days is the idea of privilege and the idea that mm-hmm. like um, things are easier for you to some extent if you have certain characteristics, and one mm-hmm. of those things is whiteness. And so for me, like, uh, and, and you know, that's that's something that's so vividly illustrated in the book is that like because um you weren't white you faced a lot of challenges that you wouldn't have if you if you were uh Mm -hmm. and i think that's a very like normal human understandable thing that like these immense difficulties to, to like want them to go away uh i think it's very like understandable uh of course you know later on in life um we realize that like there's value to our identity, you know, that there's, uh, there are many things that are extremely valuable and worthwhile. Uh, and yeah. Um, anyway, that's kind of my perspective on it. I don't know if that Yeah.
0: Thank you sense. for sharing that. Yeah. I, I also want to add, like, I think it's complicated for transracial adoptees because having like such close proximity to whiteness is also in American society, right? Like, a privilege even though it may not always feel like it because it can be isolating or confusing it can be hard to develop this positive sense of yourself or a positive racial identity when you're surrounded by whiteness like at the same time like um i know there are like people i grew up with and people i meet now who because i was adopted and raised by a white family like there are certain white people who find me more accessible, who find me less threatening, who assume like I'm one of the good ones and I'm using air quotes, which you can't see. Um, These are like weird twisted privileges. And I'm honestly like one of the hardest things I grapple with now is just like what to do with that. You know, I don't want to um, you know, I don't want my adoption or how I grew up or like my position in my family to be like, I don't know, to be any kind of way for people to attack, like, other people of color, right? Or, yeah. um, but it's it's just, it's, I mean, people still do. Like, you know, it's it's really strange. Like, both being so close to whiteness and not being white, and then figuring out what that means. In a white supremacist society, it's complicated.
1: How, how, would, how would they use it to, like, attack people of color? Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
0: There are a few, I think quote unquote, like minorities more accessible than like an Asian American who's grown up in a white family. Like, uh, you know, again, it's that proximity to whiteness. It's like a little bit of um, uh, model minority stereotype for sure. Oh, And again, I'm not trying to say that's a good thing. But like, you know, nobody was ever like, I don't think they felt like falsely threatened by me. I think that my love for my white adoptive family and like their love for me made me somehow like neutralized in a lot of people's eyes as like, well, like, sure, you're not white, but like you kind of might as well be. And I have had people my whole life, like white friends or family say that to me, like, we don't think of you as Asian, like, or even like we basically think of you as white. And it's a compliment like they mean it as a compliment even though it's not
1: yeah um, my my wife has had that said to her as well yeah
0: I don't know if privilege is the right word but like that accessibility and that closeness to whiteness through like your family through being loved and approved of by white people it's just not accessible like equally to every person of color right right? um and I guess that's what I mean like in some in some lights and to some people like that my assimilation essentially by a white family in a white culture makes me like so much more understandable and so much less threatening um and I guess I've spent like a lot of years sort of dealing with what that means too right
1: like that some people can see it as a benefit whereas exactly. you see it as um in some ways a challenge right
0: right it's almost like whiteness is conferred on you through like you know your family or how your upbringing and um you know it's definitely like that's not how I think of it <laughs> but I can't really stop other people from thinking of it that way sometimes
1: we're now seeing uh, Asian-American stories told on TV and in film at a rate never before seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody who grew up with not a v- like very little exposure to Asian culture, uh, I'm wondering what are your overall thoughts on all these stories and are there ones that have been particularly meaningful to you?
0: Oh, for sure. So I think it's, like I said, um, I do think it's getting better. You know, in terms of seeing my individual experience, I know maybe that's kind of far off right? Like, um, just because it is this, you know, it's, it's an adoption story and there's, I haven't really seen too much like it, uh, yet in pop culture, but, um, you know, in terms of like Asian representation, yes, it's definitely getting better. And that's really encouraging to me. Um, I love, I love it all. I mean, I love the stories that are so like specifically uniquely, like Asian American. Um, and, uh, I also really like the ones where, a person just happens to be Asian American, <laughs> uh, but it's like within a broader story. That's not really about that. I think we need both those things. Um, I think they're both really important. Uh, I always think there could be more. Um, I'm actually really excited for, uh, Celeste Ng's little fires everywhere to, which I believe is going to be on Hulu as a yeah. mini series. So Celeste's book meant a lot to me. I mean, first of all, cause it was beautiful. Secondly, because in terms of like an adoption story in fiction, like in literature, it's not really like mine, but it's like one of the first instances I saw that even sort of resembled it in that the, um, you know, the birth mother in the story is, is an immigrant to the U.S. My birth parents were immigrants to the U.S. Um, you know, it's just, and the, the baby was going to grow up in, um, in a white family. And it was just the way that I think Celeste wrote about that and, um, illuminated some of the complications in Adoption, for me, it was kind of one of the first times I saw that in fiction. So I'm really curious to see how it translates, you know, to the small screen. Um, and I'm just excited uh, for that mini series. But but yeah, I, I don't know. It's Like I said, I, I feel like there's more out there than there used to be. But I always wish there were more. Um, and I wish there were more, like, for kids, you know? Mm. Uh, like, when I think about, like, kids' shows, that's, I think there's still kind of, like, a lack there. Um, so I don't know.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, w- w- Kung Fu Panda is out there. That's a good one. <laughs>
0: okay, <laughs> but, okay. Well, my kids love Big Hero 6. Um,
1: oh, nice. Yeah. That's and, a good one. yeah,
0: yeah. And, um, you know, they, they really like, uh, Moana and I mean, I know Mulan's not perfect, but they really love Mulan. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know. They're definitely like things, but yeah, it's.
1: We'll see how the, the Disney live, adap- uh, live action adaptation does. Um, uh huh. But, uh, yeah, uh, also, I'm looking forward to Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere. I, and I think you're right. It is going to be on Hulu. So mm-hmm. uh, so I just have two more questions for you, Nicole. One of them is about religion, which plays a big part in your oh. upbringing. Um, your parents uh, often thought that because of how things lined up perfectly for your adoption, things were meant to be. Um, yeah one of the things the book does is, is complicate that idea of destiny and fate, right? Uh, And now that you've grown older, what are your views on religion and how are they shaped by both your adoption story and how your parents raised you?
0: Um, uh, that's such a good, tough question. (laughs) Uh, So first to my parents, like point of view, I mean, they grew up telling me and I grew up to a point sort of believing that my adoption was like God's will, I guess. I mean, I say to a point because I think by the time I was, like, a teenager, um, it wasn't that I was necessarily questioning, like, the faith they raised me in, but, like, just the idea that the adoption had all been, like, organized by God, like, pulling strings up there somehow to, like, make, I don't know, like, make sure that my parents found me. Um, What actually sort of undid that belief for me was, wondering about my birth family and what their experiences had been and thinking like, I had no real sense of them yet as like whole people, like with their own lives. I didn't know what their lives were like, but I had grown up being told like they didn't want to give me up. And so by the time I was a teen, I was like, well, if they didn't want to give me up. Like, why didn't God care what they wanted? (laughs) Um, sort of like that, like stubborn teenage logic. Right. Yeah. So I think it was like the beginning of like real empathy for my birth family and wondering about them as people and just like what their circumstances were that made me think, well, if they didn't want to give me up, it doesn't really make sense that God would have like, you know, basically forced my adoption to happen. Um, and so I don't know, I, I guess I stopped believing in that aspect of it a long time ago. I would say my relationship to faith now is really complicated, you know? So in the book I write that I grew up Catholic, um, I I don't know how to talk about this because I don't usually talk about it. Forgive me. Um, it's it's complicated. I like I'm the kind of Catholic who really enjoys mass. <laughs> I like lit- liturgy and I like ritual. Um, I I still like I pray to Mary a lot. <laughs> I love Mary. I often miss mass. I have really complicated feelings about about my relationship to the church and things will frequently really upset me. And then I'll stay away for weeks (laughs) and then every now and then something will happen and I'll go back. Um, it's just, I would say it's really uneven and I'm trying to figure out what I believe. And I know there are things I don't believe anymore, but, uh, I have not really like completely, I guess, severed that particular tie. Um, and it's, it's more complicated I think in the past year and a half, since my father passed away, my parents are, very religious still they actually converted to orthodoxy when i was after i left home so they're no longer catholic but it's there. there's like overlap i guess in in beliefs and um I don't know. Like I I remember being at my father's funeral and thinking like, there's so much I'm not sure of, like, I don't know what I think or believe about like where he is, but like a part of me just like refused to believe that I'd never see him again, you know? Um, and I don't know what that was, if that wasn't the remnant of some kind of faith that I was raised in. So it's, it's really complicated and like, um, different things like, um, you know, having my children or losing my father, like these things tend to complicate it even further. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not like the sort of straightforward, like, unquestioning or less questioning faith that I was raised in. Um, but it's not a total, for me, it hasn't been a total loss of faith yet either. So I don't know. It's like, to be determined, yeah, <laughs> I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel somewhat similar. I, I was raised in a very conservative Christian church. And mm-hmm. um, for like decades, you know, I, would, I went to church every single week and Um, I I no longer really believe it anymore, but like there's a part of me that still wants to believe it, you know, that's still very Mm -hmm. drawn to it and drawn to the rituals of it and uh, the community of it. And so uh, I understand like it being complicated. Um, So thank you for sharing.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course.
1: Last question. Um, I will say that uh, adoption is something that I have considered at Various points in my life. And uh, and one of the things that the book does really well is, as I've said before, complicate the idea of transracial adoption and, and say like, hey, um, there's more to this than what you might believe from any depictions of it in our culture. Uh, one thing I didn't really, uh, see that much of in the book though, is like what your actual advice would be for people who are considering transracial adoption. Like, Mm -hmm. um, at one point you kind of reference, like making sure they have the, the proper resources, but I guess I'm curious, like for people out there who are considering transracial adoption or have, uh, adopted somebody of a different race, um, what, what would you have to say to them? Like, what is your advice to them given your own experience?
0: Sure. I mean, I, I, think I deliberately didn't have too much of that in the book because if it were a book of advice, it would be a very different type of book. Right. Also, I, I, you know, I frequently feel unqualified to give parenting advice in general. Like I don't have adopted kids, but I have biological kids and, Believe me, I'm well aware of like all my shortcomings and like all the things I don't know. Um, I know it's always really difficult. And I know that, like, you always want to believe that your good intentions will somehow get you across the finish line. Um, like I relate to that so hard as a parent. So, I mean, but when i when I am asked to give advice, generally, what I say is that, um, you know i don't I don't really think of adoption in terms of like pro or con or negative or positive. Um, I would never like actively, I mean, unless somebody was like, uh, a, a total, I don't know, like if I knew somebody was like an abuser, I would of course discourage them from adopting, you know, but like I, the average person or a person, I don't know their circumstances. I, I wouldn't like stand up there and say, you shouldn't adopt or you shouldn't adopt transracially. Um, it's such a personal decision. I think that the most important thing, uh, is really to go into it with your eyes as wide open as possible and recognize that, um, It's a parent's job, right, to be their child's first best ally. And so if you're adopting transracially and you're white, your child is going to face certain things growing up as a non-white person in this country that you just haven't faced. Like that's just a fact. Um, you won't have that same experience to draw from. So like, what do you have to draw from when these things happen? Or like, if they face racism at school, or you're trying to prepare them to like go out into the world, which is still like incredibly racist. Um, like how how are you going to have those conversations? How are you going to prepare them? How are you going to stand with them and when they're younger, advocate for them, and when they're older, support them however they need support. When this isn't something that you've directly experienced, um, I think I think that you know it's not it's hard, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. Um, we can and do have the ability to empathize um, and support people who have vastly different experiences than we do. So I don't think it's like an impossible challenge to meet, um, but I do think it's essential like not to sugarcoat it, not to assume it will be easy or assume that love and good intentions will always be enough. Uh, and just recognize like things will also happen that you're not in control of as a parent. Like one of the hardest things I think for us as parents is knowing things will hurt our children and we can't always do anything about it. Um, racism is deeply harmful. Like it just, it just is. And it's, it, you're not going to be able to really protect your child from that. So again, like what are you going to do when it happens? Um, I mean, these are just some things. There are other things like, Really making sure your families are in line and supportive, and like, if not, that you know how you're going to handle that. Because if it comes down to like your child and like your sister or your parent or your aunt or uncle or you know, racist cousin, like, you need to know whose side you're going to be on, (laughs) um, and and how you're going to respond to that. So, I don't know, this is a little bit rambling, but I think. I think there's more awareness in adoption these days of these challenges. I still think, you know, there could be better education for adoptive parents, there could be more resources and support. It's really important, I think, for adoptive parents to find and follow and listen to like the work of other adoptees. And there are a lot of resources out there, and like a lot of publications and blogs, and adoptees on Twitter. Like there are people you can find and follow and learn about their experiences. And I think, you know, that's probably another really important thing um, to do if you're thinking about adopting transracially, um, or adopting at all. And and you're not alone. I've I've thought about adoption at various points in my life too. I uh, so you know, it's, it. I wouldn't say it's even entirely off the table. I've thought about fostering, I guess. And, um, so I don't know, it's, it's not as though my experience made me like completely shy away from that possibility. Um, you know, of course I have a different perspective on it all since I grew up adopted. Um, but I, I definitely understand why people, you know, why it's appealing to people and why they'd want to build their families this way. Um, so Does that answer your question?
1: It does. It does. Thank (laughs) you for sharing. Um, Well, Nicole Chung, uh, it's been a delight to talk to you today. Uh, Nicole Chung is the former managing editor of The Toast and the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine. She's also the author of the memoir All You Can Ever Know, which is out right now in paperback. Nicole, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, David. It was really nice talking with you.
1: Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. It's the segment of the show each week where I recommend something I've been listening to, watching, reading, smelling, eating, drinking, whatever. This week, I wanna recommend an article to you. This one comes in from Rachel Monroe in the November 2019 issue of The Atlantic. It's entitled, When GoFundMe Gets Ugly, the largest crowdfunding site in the world puts up a mirror to who we are and what matters most to us. And what I love about this article is Typically, when we see a GoFundMe that's wildly successful, it is something that everyone shares on Facebook or on Twitter as like a very heartwarming message, like, oh my gosh, look at all this good stuff that's happening to this person who is in need and very deserving. Uh, And what this article The Atlantic by Rachel Monroe posits is not necessarily that it's a bad thing that people are getting help, but that the way in which people are helped on GoFundMe is something that is reflective of deep injustices in our society. And it's, you know, generally there's only a certain type of people that get help, a a certain type of campaign uh, that gets really well funded. And I I do think it's worth considering that when we get kind of sold these feel good stories by the media or whoever to look deeper and see if there are kind of systemic issues that these feel good stories are papering over. And for, for that reason, I strongly recommend you check out this article. Again, it's called When GoFundMe Gets Ugly by Rachel Monroe in The Atlantic. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, check it out there. And I, I think you can kind of tell a theme running throughout this podcast and a lot of my work is I generally try to look past the headlines and, and try to see like, hey, what is the deeper story here? Is there, is there a deeper story here? Is there something worth considering that uh, might not be able to be captured in a tweet? And this you know 30-minute long article t- kind of does get at one of those issues in this case, which GoFundMe... Campaigns do well. Anyway, hope you enjoy the article and hope you enjoyed this episode of Culturally Relevant. You can find more episodes at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, wherever your podcasts are downloaded. We hope you will leave a star rating or a review for us there. This episode was edited and produced by me, David Chen. Special thanks to Danish Syed for his help making this episode. This episode was also powered by Simplecast. If you are looking to start your own podcast, check out Simplecast.com. They are a great service. For creating your own podcast with some really powerful tools. I'd highly recommend them. That's going to bring us to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.